If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and for today's podcast, which is the last of 2019, I spoke to the medieval historian Catherine Harvey about a surprising and sometimes quite revolting subject, personal hygiene in the Middle Ages. Catherine has written a feature on how medieval people were not necessarily as filthy as you might think for the January issue of BBC History magazine. I headed to Birkbeck in London, where Catherine is based, to find out more about keeping clean in the Middle Ages. So, to start us off, when you speak to people who aren't medievalists, um, aren't experts in this field, or possibly when you watch TV or films or read books, what are some of the most common misconceptions about medieval hygiene that you encounter? Well, I I mean, I suppose the stereotype is that medieval people were dirty, that they never washed, that nobody washed between the fall of Rome and sort of the 18th century or something, um, and that consequently they were all filthy dirty. But I think also that they didn't really care that they were filthy dirty, that people didn't mind dirt in the Middle Ages in the way that we do now. But what have you found looking into this a bit more deeply? Well, that people actually were far keener on washing in the Middle Ages than we think they are, and that certainly 
even if maybe they struggled to achieve the sense of hygiene that we can now achieve with, you know, power showers and washing machines and all the wonderful things that we've got, that they knew that it was important to keep clean, that the medical theory suggests that it's important to keep clean, and that people were doing their best to wash themselves and their clothes and that hygiene mattered to people in the Middle Ages. So you mentioned there um, medical theories mm-hmm. in stressing the importance of cleanliness. What kind of common medical theories were there about cleanliness at the time? Basically, it's washing is really good as long as you do it in moderation. So too much bathing sort of opens up the pores and leaves you prone to bad vapours and all that sort of thing, particularly with the Black Death, that becomes a concern. But most of the time, if you're washing in moderation, so you're washing, they usually recommend that you wash your hands and face every morning and then that you're washing your hands through the day, you know, before meals, if they get dirty, that sort of thing. But then that also, if you can, that you'll be bathing on a regular basis and you'll be keeping your clothes clean. Because I I think it all links back to the fact that medieval doctors are very concerned about people's humours and the idea that the, the the body is sort of it's whether you're healthy or not is based on the balance of these humours and a bit of fluids in the body and that the sort of the way you behave in your daily life so things like washing can have a real effect on your health. How would washing or cleanliness have affected the humours? So well it's it's because one of the things that is really important in terms of the humours is um, excretion and repletion, so sort of the the things that are coming in and out of your body. They're very worried, for example, about sweat as a form of excretion and any sort of dirt on the body can be um, seen as excretion of um, the sort of the byproducts of digestion. And so these need to be got out of your body and then they need to be cleaned off of your body. Um, And one of the reasons they need to be cleaned off of your body is because if you've got they tend to think of it in terms of sort of putrid matter on your skin or your clothes. That's where you'll get parasites growing. The, the theory about the growth of parasites was really interesting. Can you explain that in a little bit more depth? Yeah. So up until the um, 17th century, when people like William Harvey start to do some really interesting experiments and they've got microscopes to um, help them see these things, rather than realising that parasites hatch from eggs and that you catch them, um, they think that they sort of grow spontaneously in unpleasant matter, so dirt on your body or dirt in your clothes, and that um, so that would be for sort of lice and things, and the intestinal worms come from um, sort of putrid matter in in the gut. I think a lot of the time when we think of the Middle Ages, something that looms very large is this idea of uh, disease and epidemics, the Black Death, leprosy. Mm. What was the connection made between epidemics and cleanliness? So when, um, particularly when the Black Death comes in in the 14th century, doctors do start to fret about um, cleanliness and bathing in particular in terms of disease and causing epidemics, both because they worry that if you bathe it, it opens the pores in the skin and then you sort of let the bad vapours in and you might catch the plague, but also because they are aware, although they don't understand germ theory, they are aware of this idea that you sort of you can catch things from people. And so if you're going to a really crowded bathhouse that's a good place to, to pick up the plague. So and then they start to recommend that you need to be careful during an epidemic. So actually cleanliness was the enemy of healthiness in that respect? It could be at, at times, yeah. But washing or bathing were believed to help some ailments. What yeah. what types? Um, I mean, it gets recommended for all sorts of complaints from sort of kidney stones. There's a... Um, 12th century abbot of Revo, Elred of Revo, that big 
one in Yorkshire, and he had terrible kidney stones, and he sort of seems to have been in the bath virtually constantly um, at the recommendation of his doctors. But also on a far more prosaic level, it's recommended, for example, it seems to be a popular cure for the common cold by the later Middle Ages that you'll have a bath, or if you can't do that, you wash your feet in hot water. Um, so, yeah, but basically that there are quite a lot of things that bathing will, will cure in the Middle Ages. So it rests on this sort of very complicated and sophisticated, albeit wrong, medical theory. <laughs> um, and that they, yeah, they very much work out by, by theory and by observation where they think bathing helps. So if you wanted to study this kind of thing, mm. what materials are out there for you? Um, for the medical sort of ideas, there are lots of medical tracts and recipe collections with all sorts of, you know, recipes for shampoos and things. Um, in terms of sort of the other stuff, it is all sorts of bits and pieces. You know, I mean, things like coroner's inquests can be really interesting because that's where these people who drowned having a bath in the river turn up. Um, sort of books about conduct and manners and, the, you know, the idea that a sort of a well-behaved person does do their washing um all sorts of saints lives for the for all these really repulsive religious practices so it really is yeah stuff sort of scattered all over the place um and yeah little bits of material culture um just down the road from here in the british museum there are some really lovely um aquamanels which are the big jugs that were used for hand washing um that were these obviously are really lovely ornate examples from um, really elite households so there are odd bits and pieces. In practical logistical terms, mm. how did people bathe? Well, basically, you've got three options. So a lot of people would have had a wooden tub that they kept at home and fill up with them. Um, they had to fetch the water and heat it up and put it in the tub. Um, if you live in the towns, you might go to a bathhouse. Um, and there are quite a lot of those. In Paris in the 13th century, there are about 30 bathhouses. Um, and the other thing people do a lot is wash in rivers and streams and lakes. Often when we come across those, it's, unfortunately it's cases of people who've drowned having a bath in the River Thames or something. To pick up on your point about bathhouses there, mm. what would the atmosphere of those been like? Were they open to everybody in society or were they divided by social class? I mean, very wealthy people would have had their own private bathing facilities. I mean, somebody like Edward III had his own tiled bathroom with um, hot and cold running water attendants, you know, lo lovely perfume soaps, all the rest down at Westminster. But bathhouses, no, I mean, generally anybody can go to the bathhouse. What they do do sometimes is segregate by day. So they have days for men and days for women. Um, and in parts in Spain, for example, where there are a lot of Jews, there'll be a separate day for the Jews. But there are also records elsewhere in the, I think it's the early 15th century, there's an Italian chap writes a lovely letter about he's gone to somewhere in Germany and gone to the bathhouses and he's horrified to see the men and women bathing together in these rather scanty um, linen shifts. Um, so, yeah, he found that rather shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so people's bathtubs in their own houses, I guess a lot of this is divided by social class in mm. terms of that the majority of people that wouldn't have been accessible to them? Or is that a misconception? I think it comes lower down the social scale than you would think that people might have one of these tubs in their houses. I mean, it's, they're quite difficult to trace. Sometimes they come up in inventories, but obviously because they're wooden, very few of them have survived. Um, but it does seem to come from inventories. It does seem to come down to, I suppose, what we might call at least the middling salts. 
Um, and that the really basic equipment of washing, the sort of the big jugs and the basins that people use for washing their hands and face, and I suppose what we'd now call a quick strip wash, um, go right down to the, the peasantry. Can you tell us about some of the most unusual remedies or recipes for cleaning ingredients that you yeah. came across? Um, I, well, I suppose probably the most repulsive to us is the things that they add, um, probably more to their clothes washing than their, their bathing, but the ingredients they add to um, add, add ammonia into their wash. So they use things like urine and wood ash. Um, and I guess because it's ammonia, it would have a bleaching effect. It would help them get them clean, but it sounds pretty disgusting. Was there no kind of discrepancy seen there between the urine and the and cleanliness? It, it seems such a disgusting idea, doesn't it? I mean, they're deliberately keeping it so that it's stale at urine, so that the ammonia increases. I mean, having done that, they're then very often very concerned to make their washing smell nice. So you do get stuff about um, putting herbs into the washing tub and also about sort of drying things on fresh grass so that your, your sheets smell of freshly cut grass or something, which I suppose is... Okay. <laughs> sort of balances out the urine. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And she said she can remember her grandmother talking about having a bath tub in their house. And we we're only talking there about the early 20th century. So in a way, if you think that everybody in the Middle Ages was filthy, you have to work on the assumption that most people were filthy until about 80, 90 years ago, which probably they were. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And what about hair care? So again, they're, they're quite keen on that, partly because rather weirdly, they see hair as a form of excretion. They think that... Um, so the bad ravers rise up through the body and come out of the head, and, and so hair is a form of excretion. So hair, the hair itself, not just that um, grease was emitted, yeah, the hair itself the hair was itself. an excretion. Yeah. Um, but uh, so they recommend, I, th I think the sort of the standard recommendation is you should be washing your hair probably two, uh, every two to three weeks. So not terribly often by our standards, but probably often enough to stop it getting really filthy, I suppose. 
Um, and that then you, yeah, you wash it in, in warm water with all sorts of scented powders and perfumes. There's a lot of rose petals going on in the recipe books. Um, and that um, there are also some dry powders that they, you know, uh, I suppose a bit like dry shampoo. And you sort of, you can comb those through your hair. And I mean, the other thing they, they do, if you look at any medieval comb, they have this, they're sort of two-sided and they have the wide bit for tying up your hair. And then the really fine tooth, uh, tooth comb, I suppose a bit like a nick comb, so that you get all the um, dirt and grass and creatures out. So all of these things would be seen to make you more attractive? Which... Yeah, I think that I mean, certainly if you read sort of books of good manners and things that start to appear in the Middle Ages, there's a sort of a clear sense that this is what a well-bred person does. Um, and that even in the Middle Ages, there are some sort of rather nasty stereotypes about peasants being sort of of the soil and sort of covered in soil and eating soil and and so that it's it does come to be seen in a way as a sort of a status thing that if you know if you can really clean and perfume yourself that that shows off your good manners another aspect of this i thought i'd ask you about is cleaning your teeth was there an idea that you had to keep them clean and in good order yeah i mean the, the sort of the key things seem to be that you should um you should rinse your mouth either with water usually with water when you get up Sometimes people recommend washing, rinsing with wine. Um, that you should um, rub your teeth with a cloth. Um, again, there are all sorts of herbal powders. And they, they use mint quite a lot, actually, which, of course, we still do, don't we, in toothpaste. Um, and there's also all sorts of stuff sort of using sticks, either as toothpicks or rubbing your teeth. Um, according to one chronicler, the Welsh were particularly keen on, on doing that and had particularly good teeth because of it. Um, but again, because because they're very worried about any sort of unpleasant residues in the body, they don't sort of like the idea that your teeth are covered in mucus and dirt. And so it seems to them important to get it off to prevent decay. Um, and finally, I'm going to lower the tone even more by asking about <laughs> toilet facilities. Okay. The, oh, the facilities are, yeah, nowhere near as good as ours, a lot more chamber pots and things. There were public toilets in London by the 12th century. Um, there are a lot of rules in cities about sort of how they must be maintained and drained and all the rest of it. Um, I think certainly by the end of the Middle Ages, if you were relatively well-to-do and living in a city, you'd expect to have your own private privy. Um, in terms of sort of hygiene around the toilet, they, the standard thing to wipe yourself with seems to be straw, unless you're wealthy enough to sort of use pieces of cloth um and yeah there doesn't seem to be an awful lot about washing your hands after you've been to the loo unless they're sort of visibly dirty the point you made there about there being quite a lot of laws and rules within towns and cities to to maintain hygienic facilities for toilets you also have talked about there being laws and rules surrounding washing in rivers and in public places because you suggest there was so much washing that it had to be controlled. Yeah, you do get, there's a, there's a sort of a particular series of cases in Coventry in the mid-15th century where first they have to ban people from doing their washing in the um, conduits in the city, which are supposed to be sort of clean water for, for cooking and the like. And then a couple of decades later, the prior of Coventry complains about all the poor people doing their washing in his fish ponds and it's killing all the fish. 
Um, but the city city authorities actually stand up for these people and go, no, it's an ancient right, and they must be allowed to do their washing there. Um, I mean, some places in some Italian cities, and I think in some Italian cities actually they still survive, although they're obviously not used anymore. They actually built off of these conduits great big troughs for people to do their washing in. Um, do occasionally get people told off fined for bathing in the conduits as well. Um, and is that how most people would have kept their their clothing and their bedding clean? So, I mean, again, you've got a few options. If you're in a town, you can use those sorts of facilities. Some people would have used big tubs for washing. Um, and there's a lot of washing on goes on in rivers. So here in London, there was a jetty known as the Lavender Brig, which was where the women were allowed to do their washing. Um, and at some point in the later Middle Ages, the city authorities actually threatened to fine people who are depriving the poor women of access to the jetties to do their do their washing. In Paris, in the later Middle Ages, there was a big hospital. And one of the chroniclers talks about the poor nurses who have to go into the river this time of year when it's freezing cold and it's muddy. And I think they actually had a, a chap whose job it was to sort of be there to fish them out if, if one of them fell in. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's quite a dangerous job, but I suppose it says something about how important washing was to people, that they were willing to uh, take those risks, because I wouldn't get in the river Thames to do my washing. In terms of clothing, was there an understanding that you would change your clothing every now and again? There's, a, again, the kind of common misconception would be that you'd have one set of clothes that you'd wear until they ran out. Yeah, and I mean, there is some evidence that that was true at the sort of the very poorest levels of society. And obviously, if you, yeah, if you've only got one set of clothes... I suppose occasionally in summer, you and they might be able to have a quick tip in the river. But I think beyond the very poorest levels of society, most people do have at least a change of clothes. Definitely, again, towards the later Middle Ages, it becomes the norm for people to wear um, linen undergarments. And so it becomes easier. You can wash your out, you can change those quite frequently, um, even if you're not changing your outer clothes. And I, I mean, I suppose to be fair, we still do that, don't we? We wash the clothes that come into contact with our skin. We probably don't wash our coats very often. So, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, you know, pretty much what they're aiming for. We spoke at the start about um, medical theory, mm-hmm. but also how this connected into uh, religious theory mm-hmm. and beliefs about where cleanliness um, fit into that spectrum. Because cleanliness wasn't necessarily next to godliness, was it? No, I mean, I think there's this sort of this idea that the church broadly was hostile to washing, and I don't think that's true. Um, you know, I think what the, what the church is mainly concerned about is that these bathhouses do tend to have an association with prostitution, and they don't like the idea of mixed naked bathing, and so they're concerned about the sort of, the yeah, the potential moral problems that arise from bathing. But there's there's also a lot of evidence that, you know, churchmen did wash most of them, and there's even a 14th century sermon that I came across the other day where the preacher says that um, Christ and his disciples all wash their hands after meals and, and frequently because they were honest men. Um, so, you know, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for the rest of us, I guess. But um, there, is, there is also this sort of school of thought in the Middle Ages that if you're really holy, that maybe washing isn't for you. And it sort of fits in with this broader idea that you sort of... I suppose you prioritise the soul over the body and you're sort of proving that you're so focused on religious matters that you're not indulging your body and maybe even you're depriving it and deliberately harming it. And so you might do that by things like fasting. 
but you might also do that by things like not washing. Um, and so there are, yes, some really horrible stories about late medieval saints who do things like, um, I've come across at least one who refused to wash her hair ever deliberately so that she would get head lice and they would sort of, the itch was seen as a sort of a, a, um, a form of asceticism, a way of punishing the body. Um, and there are also some really famous ones, somebody like Thomas Beckett, um, after he was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral and the monks were stripping his body to prepare it for burial, they found that he was wearing a hair shirt, which impressed them. But what impressed them even more was that that hair shirt was full of little lice and fleas. And they seem to have interpreted sort of that, the really sort of unpleasant itchiness of that as almost a form of martyrdom sort of during life that then foreshadowed his literal martyrdom in the cathedral. So, yeah, to be, to be dirty could be um, a way of proving your faith. But I think, I mean, that only works as a way of proving your faith because most people in the Middle Ages aren't filthy. Because if everybody was filthy, then that doesn't make you stand out, does it? And there's another 13th century bishop, Thomas Cantaloupe at Hereford, who, after he dies in the canonization inquiry, one of his servants says that he wore a hair shirt and it was so full of lice that they could take handfuls of them out of it, which is absolutely disgusting. Um, but that when they wanted, that if they wanted to give his clothes away to the beggars, they actually wouldn't take them like that. They either had to wash them or they couldn't, you know, give them away to all because even people who were poor enough to desperately need charity didn't want clothes with handfuls of lice in them. Um, understandably, I think. But it does reinforce that point that, yeah, not everybody was... Filthy. And I suppose it's, it's it's almost if you can go, well, I'm so wealthy, I could have my own bathhouse. I could definitely have a bath in a tub in front of my fire. But actually, I'm never going to wash. It's a bit like fasting. when you Fasting only works, doesn't it, if you have got lots of food. It, it, it's a way of sort of renouncing what you could have and proving your devotion to God in the process. Mm. How would you amend the public perception of the filthy, smelly medieval ages? Um, well, I suppose by saying that, yeah, they are far less filthy and smelly than we think, as a general rule, um, and particularly that they didn't want to be filthy and smelly, even if sometimes they were because they were too poor and they had to wash themselves in the rivers with all the sort of difficulties that that entailed. Um, I mean, there are obviously a whole range of sort of, you know, we're talking about a big chronological range and things changed over time there are different attitudes between countries between classes and I suppose there must have been variation on an individual level and you know if we compared how often I don't think we should but if we compared how often we wash we probably wouldn't find it was exactly identical so there's always an element of personal um inclination in there isn't there and I suppose also that in reality if you think about it the things that we now take for granted you know that most people will have a bath in their house for example are really quite recent developments and when I was writing this article, I was talking to my mum about it. And she said she could remember her grandmother, I think it was, talking about having a bath tub in their house. And we were only talking there about the early 20th century. So in a way, if you think that everybody in the Middle Ages was filthy, you have to work on the assumption that most people were filthy until about 80, 90 years ago, which probably they weren't. That was Catherine Harvey, you can read her feature on medieval hygiene, which goes into more detail about some of the practices she described here, 
in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. It also includes features on Prohibition, George Orwell, Georgian Britain's vampire craze, and why the Victorians were not as miserable as you might think. In spring 2020, we're also hosting two days of talks on medieval life and death in London and York. You can find out more about them at our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. This is our last podcast of 2019 and we'll be back in the new year. Tune in next on January the 2nd when David Reynolds will be discussing the history behind Brexit. Brexit.